all the king's angels and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to the very first book of the Bible entitled Beginnings, the book of Genesis. We began last week a series entitled God's Clock of the Ages. We're using the book that Charles Baker wrote entitled God's Clock of the Ages. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at different promises that God has made humanity. Last week, we introduced the fact that God created, in the beginning, God's plural created singular. And we saw that God gave us the reality that he is the creator of all things. And so through this next series, over the next nine, ten weeks, we're going to look at different promises that are found in the scriptures. And you have an outline in your bulletin that has a clock on it. I'd like you to take that out this morning because this morning we want to use that as we look at the first promise that we find in the scriptures, and that is what we call the Adamic covenant or the Adam covenant, the Adam promise that God gave to Adam. Before we look into this great promise that God gave at the very beginning of Genesis, and that's what the name Genesis means, it means beginning. Before we look at that, I want to just make a comment about Charles Baker and some of his theories of creation. Some of you have come into my office this past week, and rightfully so. I love it when you visit my office and you want to talk about scriptures. And there were some concerns that some of you shared, not just one. There were a couple of you that came in and said, what is it about this gap theory that Charles Baker is talking about? And you were scratching your head and you were raising some great issues and questions about theology. Good for you. I want to say to you that Charles Baker held to what is called the gap theory. This theory was introduced back in the late 1700s and it became popular through the Schofield Reference Bible that was printed in the early 1900s. My mother-in-law was a gap theory supporter and I loved my mother-in-law but I didn't necessarily agree with her. Try that sometime. <laughs> it's not always good to disagree with your mother-in-law when it comes to theology. But she was a lady that loved the Lord. She taught fifth and sixth grade Sunday school for years. She had a love for the scriptures. She had a love for Christ. But she also embraced this gap theory, which says, and this is what Charles Baker promotes in this book, that between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, there is a gap of time, possibly. That God created the earth in a wonderful setting, and then something happened to the earth. And many believe in this gap theory that Lucifer fell during this time frame between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, and it's called the gap theory, where there could possibly be millions or billions of years between these two verses. And I want you to know that Charles Baker promotes that in this book. Recognize that there needs to be some flexibility in our understanding of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. 
that there is a lot of mystery behind these three chapters of Scripture. There's another theory, which is called the day-age theory, which says that the days of creation, that there possibly could be millions of years between the days of creation that is recorded here in Genesis chapter 1. As many of us believe, and I tend to lean closer to this theory of what we call the young earth theory that the history of humanity is at some point around 6,000 years of age. Uh, next Sunday night, we're going to look at why theistic evolution has some holes in it, why the gap theory and also the day-age theory has some holes in it. Many of you uh, listened to Bob Dutko uh, back in January, and Bob was a guest of our church, and he presented to us some of the facts of the young earth theory that he presented to us. We're going through that material on Sunday nights. We invite you to come and to be a part of that discussion. I think it's a wonderful discussion. And I want to say to you and to I that Charles Baker, in choosing this book, was not chosen for the sake of one of these theories of creation. That is not his emphasis. That is not the strength in this book. God's clock of the ages is a strength in showing us the promises that God gives throughout all of humanity and embrace it for that. Can I also suggest that just because somebody believes in another theory of some other form of theology, depending on what it is, that we not throw out everything that the man teaches. There are going to be times and places where we need to wrestle and struggle and ask and dig. That's good for us. That's being good Bereans. So I commend you for coming in and visiting and sharing some of your concerns about these uh, theories because there are some holes. And I look at Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and I hold this premise, and I hope you hold it as well. God created everything. God created the heavens and the earth, period. And that, my friends, is what we need to hold on to because some of these theories that do come up, the premise behind their theory is this. There is no God, that it just happened by chance, and that it evolved. And I will say to you, I believe that God is the creator. That's what the scriptures reveal. And that, to me, is what I'm going to become uh, very um, uh, suggestive of by way of what the scriptures teach. And so I believe that we need to keep that in mind as we go through our study of God's clock of the ages and understanding some of Charles Baker's uh, theory here on uh, the gap theory. Having said that, let's go to Genesis chapter 1. And I'd like to call your attention to the biblical perspective of this Adamic covenant that I would like to take the next couple of moments with you and share some of the details of this Adamic covenant, and there are many. I need you to know that we're going to, from the start here, we're going to look at a lot of material, and we're going to try and see that the Adamic covenant consists of two halves. The first half is the half that says, here is what took place before the fall. Humanity, humanity sat on a wall. Humanity, humanity had a great fall. Before the fall of humanity, the scriptures provide us some wonderful details about the creation that God gave us. And so we're going to look at 10 characteristics, and you're going to find these 10 
on the back side of that insert in your uh, bulletin insert with the clock. Turn it over on the back and you're going to find 20 different characteristics. The first 10 are going to be the first half before Adam and Eve fell into sin. The second 10 characteristics are going to be now that Adam and Eve fell. What are some of the characteristics of that Adamic covenant that will lead us to the climax of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, which is the climax of the Adamic covenant? So let's begin with this. Let's look at Genesis chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created him. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. What a beautiful picture of Hebrew poetry that I believe Moses wrote here uh, by way of Genesis chapter 1. It's poetic in its uh, construction. And we find here there are ten elements of God's creation before it fell into sin. Notice the first one. Go back to verse 26. God created humanity, male and female, in his own image. The image of God, there have been many books that have been written about what does it mean to be in the image of God. And it's not that God is a physical being with two arms and a hand and legs like us. I don't think it's physical necessarily. But it does have, I believe, the element that God has intellect, that God has reason and can think, that God has emotions. He can get sad. He can be sad. He can be angry. He can be joyful. God has a will. He chooses and makes choices and makes decisions. That's the character of God and many others. At a more fundamental level, when we consider these aspects of ourselves, we see that we are beings self-aware and conscious of I and you. We are not impersonal its. We are like this because God is like this in this way. In this fundamental perspective, the God of the Bible is not portrayed, portrayed as a pantheistic impersonality as understood in Eastern religions or like the force in the Star Wars. And because we are made in his image, neither are we. It is that we are creative like he is creative. Some of us are painters and poets 
and writers and philosophers and doctors and consultants and manufacturers and chefs. We create. We have all been given the capacity to create like our creator. We are spirit beings. God is a spirit and we are spirit beings. God has placed a spirit in this shell that we live in. We are communicators. God communicates the art of language and writing and it's a sharp contrast between the animal kingdom. We are relational beings. It's not good for man to be alone, God is going to say in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. And God creates a woman for Adam because of his loneliness. We are communicative beings that have relationships with others. And we are moral beings. That is, we understand the moral laws that govern us, much like God is a moral being, and so much more. What does it mean to be in the image of God? It means that we are reflectors of God himself. In fact, John Piper says it this way, images are created to image. We are created in the image of God to reflect him. And that's why we're in the image of God in so many different ways. Not just these, but in other ways as well. Images are created to image, to set forth the reality of who God is. Mankind is to show him and who he is. God, from the very beginning here, creates us in his own image. Friends, the value of human life is based on this principle. From conception to death, no matter what color the skin, no matter who we are, if we are human, if we are male or female, there is great value to you and to me because we reflect the very likeness of him. Oh, my friends, if we see the value that we have in one another, how we treat one another and what we say to one another and how we respond to one another has everything to do with us understanding that we together are created in the image of God. What a wonderful truth here that the Adamic covenant is based on this reality that we are created in the image of God. Secondly, look at verse 28. God has created humanity to rule over the earth. We're told here that we are to care for, to have dominion, to have power over it to care for the garden when we get to chapter 2. I believe that chapter 1 is a general overview of creation, and then when we get to chapter 2, what Moses is going to do is give us a specific detail on how God created humanity, especially man and woman. And we're going to find that Adam and Eve, especially Adam in the garden, was put there in the garden to care for the garden. We are placed in a superior role in exercising control over creation, to have mastery over it. Not to abuse it, but to use it in honor and glory of the resources that God gives us. I'd like you to just keep your finger here in Genesis. Well, maybe you don't have to put a finger in Genesis. It's easy to find. Would you go right in the middle of your Bible to Psalm chapter 8? Look at Psalm chapter 8. If you're not sure where the book of Psalms is, just take your Bible and turn right to the middle 
of your Bible, and hopefully you'll find the book of Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. It's kind of right in the middle of your book, Psalm chapter 8, verse 4. Look at what the psalmist writes. Psalm 8, verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands and you put everything under his feet, all flocks, herds, beasts of the field, birds of the air, fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. All creation has been put under the authority of humanity. And we have been given the responsibility and the reality of caring for it. I don't know if this is true or not, friends, but I wonder if the reason that some of us like golf so much, have you been watching the Masters? The Masters is a golf tournament right now that's going on down in Augusta, Georgia. It looks warm there. It's not snowing in Augusta, Georgia. When I see the pictures of this green golf course, and when I'm on a green golf course, the reason I love the green golf course is it is manicured to the tee. I love golf courses because it is trimmed and groomed like no other place. Can you imagine all of earth being a golf course? And not having to chase the little white ball around just for the beauty because that's the most frustrating part of golf. I usually end up in the weeds. I need to get back into the middle of the fairway where it's nice and green and it's trimmed and it's groomed. That's where we want to live. That's what God has created us to do to all of creation. Think of it. If all of the earth were a place like a golf course, wouldn't, it be a wonder, wouldn't that be a little bit like heaven? I mean, come on, watch the tournament today. Just watch just five minutes and just look at the beauty of Augusta, Georgia, uh, Atlanta, Georgia, yeah, uh, is it Georgia? I think it's Georgia. That's right. And just look at it for a moment and just say, now, if that's not heaven, I don't know what is. God created humanity to rule over the earth. Look at a third characteristic. We have to move quickly here. In verse 28, God created humanity to be fruitful. The first commandment that God gives humanity is to reproduce. That is that Adam and Eve were complements of one another. The greatest revelation of God's glory is the complement of male and female. I think this is a wonderful truth that we need to embrace today. But what's happening in our culture today is there are two dangers that are taking place, two abuses. The first is male domination over women. That is not what the scriptures teach. Male domination over, hum uh, over uh, females, that is not what the scriptures teach. There's a complementariness to the fact that there is male and female. But the second abuse today is the negate of gender differences that we are finding in our culture today. In fact, just yesterday, I received this in the mail. Children at risk, urgent action needed. Came from another local church, Emmanuel Reformed Church, sent this to Parkside Bible Church. This letter stated that the state of education has issued, quote, a guidance policy for public schools. Students of all ages to choose their gender, change their names and pronoun, and use the bathroom of their choice. This would all be done without parental knowledge or permission. Again, this article goes on to say, according to the Michigan Board of Education, the Council of Doctors, Psychiatrists, or even parents is not welcome. 
The guidance policy states, quote, the responsibility for determining a student's gender identity rests with the student, and there's no age to it. Outside confirmation from medical or mental health pro, uh, professionals or documentation of legal changes is not needed. And so what we find in our culture today is that the culture says there is no difference between male and female. In fact, you can even change your gender. You can choose that. And we find in the scriptures here that there is this idea of God creating male and female and they are to be fruitful. That was the first command that God gave Adam and Eve. Sexuality is what God created. We need, and we'll look at this a little bit later as we go through these principles, but the reproduction of male and female was God's design from the very beginning. Go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 29. We find a fourth characteristic here. And this is interesting, I believe, that God created humanity to eat seed-bearing plants and trees from the beginning. Before the fall, we were not eating one another because sin was not in the world. And so the animal kingdom was not afraid of Adam and Eve. I think that there was an openness that Adam and Eve had with the animals. In fact, when we get to Noah, we're going to find that Noah is the one that goes, uh, the animals come to Noah and he brings them into the ark. As sin continues to affect our world, we're going to see that at the very beginning, there is something between the animals and humanity that we don't have today. They run from us because they're afraid we're going to eat them. And they're going to eat us. And so we avoid them. But notice here that the diet of fruits and vegetables, grain, nuts, seeds, roots, what a diet that Adam and Eve lived from the very beginning. They say that we are what we eat. And we're going to see the changes in humanity that the diet is going to change as we go through the scriptures. We're going to see these changes. In fact, today... In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, Paul tells us what we can eat today. Paul says in this passage, paraphrasing, you can eat everything and anything that you want. Just make sure that you give thanks to God for it. That's what we live under today. There's been some changes in our diet, and there's been some changes in how God has changed even what humanity was to eat. Here at the beginning, Adam was given the reality that he could eat seed-bearing plants and trees. And so now let's do this in our Genesis account here. The first four are mentioned in this passage. Skip now over to chapter 2, and let's look at chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 7, where we get some of the characteristics of God creating Adam and also Eve. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living soul. Number five, God created man from the dust of the earth. We did not evolve. He formed and he shaped us and he breathed into humanity the breath of life and we became a living being. This living soul in the Hebrew has the idea of the natural life and breath of oxygen that we have. In other words, we have this living soul but also do the animals. The animals are a living soul in the fact that we breathe oxygen and that's the term here that is used. It has the idea of this being the commonality of every creature that breathes. Number six, look at before the fall. Number six, look at chapter two, verse 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it, to care for it, 
And the Lord God commanded uh, the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. You find here that the sixth characteristic of Adam and Eve before they fell into sin, God told Adam, God commanded him not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Notice here that Eve is not present. Eve is not here. God gives this command to Adam only. He now creates Eve after this command. And we're going to find that in Genesis 3, Eve is going to twist the truth when, he says to, when she says to the serpent, we're not even supposed to touch it. That's not what God said. And so we find that Adam probably communicated this to Eve. She, she was right, but she also added to what God said. It's a real danger that we need to be aware of. Here, God commanded Adam to not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's a command, and it's also a responsibility that we find today. God gives us a choice to choose between right and to choose between wrong. Choices, friends, every choice that we make has a consequence. Every choice, good and bad, there's always consequences to our choices, and that's still true today. Look at number 7, chapter 2, verse 18. We're told here that God created woman to complete the man by removing his loneliness. Verse 18. The Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Loneliness for Adam was part of why God created woman in the first place. God created woman to complete the man. God intensifies the man's loneliness. And look at what happens here in the next couple of verses. Man is lonely, so what does God do? He has him name the animals. And so the animals come before Adam, he names them, and at the end of naming all of the animals, Adam looks out and he is intensified in his loneliness as he sees that all of these animals he cannot relate to in a very specific, unique way like he's going to with the woman. Because the woman is going to be created after he names all of the animals. And then God does the first surgery in chapter 2, verse 21. Look at what he, uh, God does to, to Adam in verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took of one of man's ribs and closed in the place with flesh. The first surgery done by God, he's taken the rib, not the foot, not the head, but the rib, the place closest to Adam's heart is where the woman is taken. And we're going to find that men and women are very different aren't we? And we need to embrace some of that difference. There's a great book that was written many years ago by John Gray entitled Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. And it might be a good book for us to read just to see the differences that we have. I'll tell you, it's really interesting to see men and women and how we pack for a trip. Uh, women that pack for a trip, they take weeks and sometimes a month before they're going to leave and they lay everything out they put it, they're all organized. Us guys, what do we do three, four minutes before we leave the house? <laughs> we throw all the clothes in there, and that's how we usually pack, you know? Some of the differences are really unique. Uh, saying hello and goodbye, have you noticed how guys and gals say hello and goodbye differently? You gals, I'll tell you what, it takes you five, ten, sometimes fifteen minutes to say goodbye. I've counted my wife sometimes saying goodbye five, six, seven, just say goodbye for goodness sakes, <laughs> you know? Us guys, we just say, hey, bro, we know what that means. See you later. <laughs> and that's how we say hello and goodbye. 
us, uh, you know, picking a shampoo is really unique. You gals, you go to a, a store to pick a shampoo. Uh, there's five, 15 different types of shampoos. You know the different colors. You know the different brands. You know the aromas, the ingredients. You know all the amounts of all these shampoos. We're lucky if we even know if we have a shampoo bottle in our hands. I think the shampoo is a bottle. I think that's what it is. And so there's just uh, so many different differences between men and women. How about dress? Uh, ladies, how do you dress? And how do we dress for us guys? Most of us uh, ladies, most of us ladies, most of you ladies. <laughs> I'm glad you're listening. That's good. You have a closet full of clothes, and when you look at all those clothes, you look at it and still say, I don't know what to wear. We take a shirt that we've been wearing for days, and we'll wear it for a full week, you know. And that's just the way that we look at uh, our wardrobe. It's really interesting, though, on the differences of male and female. As John Piper says, male and female are there to complement one another. And the beauty of creation, we need to see those differences. And I think the scriptures see it from the very beginning and embrace that to see that the woman is a complement taken from the very heart of hearts. For Adam to live with. Number eight, God created male and female to experience the intimacy of oneness by living, by leaving and cleaving to one another in marriage. And we're going to find that this passage here, look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 22 through 25. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woe man. Would you look at that? And that's how the Hebrew describes it. There's this woe, there's this idea of catching his attention by the beauty of this woman. Woe, would you look at this? For she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man will leave his father and mother and become one flesh. The man and the woman were both naked, and they felt no shame. We need to state yet again from the very beginning that God created male and female for the sake of marriage between a man and a woman. God created the authority of Scripture between a male and a female, and marriage is ordained by God. How do we know that? Jesus, in chapter 19 of Matthew, quotes this passage of Scripture. How do we know that Genesis is true? Jesus quotes from this text, and this is what he says. He answered, haven't you read in your Bible that the Creator originally made male and female for each other? Male and female? And because of this, a man leaves father and mother and is firmly bonded to his wife, becoming one flesh, no longer two bodies, but one. Because God created this organic union of the two sexes, no one should desecrate his art by cutting them apart. Isn't that a wonderful passage to see how husband and wife come together and marriage is ordained by God. Number nine, before the fall, we find here in chapter 2, verse 24, God created the intimacy of male and female. That is, not only physically, emotionally, but spiritually. I believe that husband and wife believe uh, that they are one flesh. And most of us that are uh, adults, we understand we need to teach our young people about our sexuality. It's not our point to go into this, but the word intimacy here for you parents, please Take the time to train your children from a very young age about the uh, importance of God creating them in their physical, their spiritual, and their emotional development. 
and have those discussions with them to teach them and to give them the tools that this, my friend, is a gift of intimacy from the eternal God. And there is nothing dirty about any of that oneness. It is a wonderful gift that God has given. And then the tenth and final characteristic of humanity before the fall, God created humanity and the earth. Chapter 2, verse 25. Look at what God says. And the man and woman were both naked, and they felt no shame. God created humanity and the earth in perfection and wholeness, and everything was good. God looked at it in chapter 1, verse 10. It was good. Chapter 1, verse 12. It is good. Chapter 1, verse 18. It is good. Chapter 1, verse 21. It is good. Chapter 1, verse 25. It is good. Chapter 1, verse 31. It is good. It is very good. He looked at it all and he said, this is good. And this is the creation of Adam before the fall. And now let's do this. In the last couple moments, humanity, humanity sat on a wall. Humanity, humanity had a great fall. And all the king's angels and all the king's men couldn't put humanity back together again. Look at the Adamic covenant now after the fall. We find in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through following, where the serpent comes to the woman and deceives her and she disobeys. Adam and Eve disobeyed God's instructions. We're told in the New Testament in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. We are all recipients of that... Um, fallen state of Adam's heart that did it with his eyes wide open. Eve was deceived. Adam did it with his eyes wide open. And you and I are recipients and we are related to him. And because of that, the Bible says that all of us have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, but sin is not taken into account when there is no law. The law was not given yet. Nevertheless, Death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. We find that Adam and Eve are going to disobey, and we're going to find, secondly, that both Adam and Eve's eyes were wide, are opened now to good and evil. They realize that they are in a state of nakedness before themselves, but especially before God. And so they try and cover themselves. Thirdly, we find here that the reason that they are uh, naked before God, or one of the results of that, is that they hid from God's presence. And we find that Adam and Eve in chapter 3, they realize that they have sinned, and what do they do? They hide. They try and hide from God's presence, which is impossible. The Bible teaches that He is everywhere. There is no way that we can hide from the very presence of God, yet they tried to flee from God's presence. Why? Because of guilt. A child will hide from a parent after stealing or lying. Don't expose the wrong. They want to hide. The conscience becomes a problem for us. The conscience tells us when we are doing something wrong. I sat in that chair as a young boy waiting for my father to come home because I had done wrong, and my, my mother placed me on the chair and said, you wait until your father comes home for the punishment that is coming. And I sat there, and my conscience was going crazy, as I knew that I had done wrong, and I knew that the punishment was coming. It's interesting that my father gave just judgment in that situation. 
he gave me a stern warning. And we find that the conscience becomes what God uses. The conscience warns us as a friend before it punishes us as a judge. Billy Graham said it this way, most of us follow our conscience as we follow a wheelbarrow. We push it in front of us in the direction we want it to go. And that's what the conscience does. It tells us about good and evil. The fourth characteristic here of the fall of Adam is that God pursued them. God asked the question, where are you? God knew where they were, but he wanted to ask them the question. And the first thing that God said about their disobedience was, you did something bad. He always asks us the question. This is a great question for us today. Where are you? Where are you in relationship to God? Where am I in relationship to others? Where is my conscience in relationship to right and to wrong? Where are you with temptation? Where are you is what God asks Adam and Eve. And God graces them as he comes to them and asks them the question. Grace is displayed. God, the God of grace, is displayed from the very beginning, even from the very first fall of Adam and Eve's disobedience. Fifth, we find that they experienced fear because of their nakedness. They were afraid of the punishment that God had for them, the consequences of their sin. They knew when God says it, it's true. When you touch of it, no. When you eat of it, you will surely die. And now they know that God's word is going to come true. They didn't die at that moment. They died spiritually in a separation from God. They will die later on. Adam will live over 900 years of age. But they experienced fear because of the punishment that was coming. Number six, and this is typical of our sin nature, they blamed others for their action. In chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, we find that, that Eve points the uh, finger uh, at Adam, or, and, and Adam points the finger at the serpent, and there's, there's finger pointing that's happening here in Genesis 3. And this is so typical of the sin nature, isn't it? That we typically, when we fall into sin, we blame somebody else for our sin. When we blame others, we give up the power to change. Responsibility brings accountability, and accountability brings about change. The blame game has no winners. Blaming others is part of us understanding our sin and to say, I'm fully responsible. I am fully responsible for what I have done here, and I take full responsibility. Isn't that tough to do? Even in our situation, isn't that tough to do when we sin? Number seven, we find that the curse of judgment falls on Lucifer, Eve, Adam, and the rest of the earth. We are living, friends, in a curse-filled world that has fallen under the judgment of God's punishment because of this sin that Adam and Eve experienced in the Garden of Eden. The judgment because of disobedience. And the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. That's what God established from the very beginning. You say, but that's not fair. Oh, yes, it is. God was very forthright. God was very truthful with Adam and Eve in the garden. And so God is faithful to his word. God is true to what he says. Number eight, we find in chapter three that God clothed them with animal skins. In chapter three, verse 21, God is the one that clothed them. Some say that the shedding of the animal's blood here was to cover Adam and Eve's sin. And that what God did here is that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But the garments of skin here is really the word for tunic. 
And we're going to find this term used in Exodus chapter 28 where the term tunic is used for the priest to cover their nakedness as they went into the presence of the Lord. This was a lasting ordinance. Number nine, we find that God banishes them from the garden. God says to them, you need to leave the garden, and he pushes them away from the garden because, the Bible says, because of the tree of life. Could it be, and the Bible seems to indicate here, that could have, could have Adam and Eve in their fallen state, had they tasted of the tree of eternal life, that they would have lived in their sin for all eternity? Can we see that death maybe is a grace that God gives us so that we don't need to live in this cursed world sin forever? I think so. And death is not necessarily something that we say, yeah, we embrace it, but it is part of creation. And we find here that death separates them from this tree of life that they might not eat it and live forever. Humanity may be like God in that a knowledge of good and evil, but they are no longer with God, and that's what we miss in our sin. We are taken from God. Interesting that in Revelation chapter 22, this tree of life that they are banished to participate in, the tree of life shows up in Revelation chapter 22. We find that the tree there bears 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. The leaves are healing for the nations. And then 10th, and here's the climax of the story. And I wanted to give you some of the background behind this because this is the promise that I want to leave you with. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, serpent, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, serpent, and you will strike his heel. This, my friends, is what many believe to be the first promise of the coming Savior that God had ordained from the beginning. This being called the Proto-Evangelium, the first promise of the gospel. The gospel that God would send forth, one that would become a sacrifice. And here it's not spelled out, but the rest of the Bible, the rest of the 65 books in the Bible, develop and describe for us God's promise here of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It is such a beautiful promise. And Paul talks about it in Romans 16. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Once the snake was crafty, now he's cursed, eating dust, total defeat. And the seed of the woman, that is the seed of Mary, that we now know to be the Christmas story, is the seed that brings destruction and brings defeat to the enemy. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, the great dragon, the ancient serpent, the one called the devil and Satan, the one who led the whole earth astray, thrown out and all of his angels thrown out with him, thrown down to the earth. He's defeated. He is a defeated foe. What a jubilation to know this promise. What a joy. In closing, I don't know if you watched the NCAA championship game. I don't know if you saw the last shot, Villanova against North Carolina, Chris Jenkins shot a 22-foot dagger that was still floating up in the air as the lights lit on the backboard. 
signaling that time had run out. Over time were the shot of the ages, and the shot went in. The crowd erupted, and Villanova celebrated with tears of jubilation and joy. Friends, I think if we can get excited about a shot that goes in, the winning shot, I think we, the church, ought to celebrate the first promise that was given in Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled in the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus Christ, the one that we sang about. It's the name above every name. He is the Savior of the world. He is your Savior. He is my Savior. Do you know him? Come to him. Embrace him as your Savior. Come closer to him and celebrate like you've never celebrated before. Your sins are fully forgiven. Your sins have been taken care of at the cross of Calvary. Humanity, humanity had a great fall. Humanity, humanity has a great Savior. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our hearts and our heads in a word of prayer. Come, my friend, to the cross of Calvary. Come and embrace him as your Lord and Savior. From the very beginning, God has demonstrated his love to you and I. The promise was given. It was fulfilled completely. And it is finished. Friend, if you haven't put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus, can I ask you, can I even plead with you? Don't let another day go by. Put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. Believe that he died for your sins. Believe that he rose again and that he conquered death and all of your sins. You can walk out of here celebrating today because you and I have a Savior. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, thank you for this great hope. Thank you for this great story. Thank you from the very beginning. You have given us your Savior, your Son. And we glory in that today, Father. May we be faithful as we continue to live for him. Thank you for these wonderful truths that are found in these first three chapters of the scriptures. Impress them, Father, upon our hearts that we might continue to grow in our knowledge and our understanding of you. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.